you would, please turn to the book of Philippians. In Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 to 13. Philippians 4, 10 to 13. And next week we'll be finishing the book of Philippians and spending some time in the Psalms. Philippians 4. Picking it up in verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, we pray that you may be with us this morning as we come to your word and we ask God that you may instruct us, that you may teach us that you may strengthen us to do what you call us to do through your word. I pray that you would may also graciously strengthen me as I to seek to proclaim your word. And we all pray, Father, for, including myself, for the humility uh, that we need to sit under your divinely and inspired and authoritative word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's no need for me to tell you how difficult uh, the year 2020 was. I mean, it was a, there's anything that perhaps many, if not all of us, struggled with was discontentment. Right? Because of the global pandemic, everything came to a screeching halt. Right? A lot of work had to be done from home, meetings had to be conducted through through Zoom, relationships, whether it's with friends or family, had to be maintained through a computer screen, the wearing of masks every time you go out. The home became sort of a prison cell that you were confined to. Right? Vacations were canceled. Graduations and other ceremonies were canceled. It was a very, very difficult year. And I don't know how well you think you did. Maybe, I don't know if you've asked yourself that question, how well did I actually do during 2020? But a lesson, a lesson that I think we could have, if you hadn't already, but a lesson that we could have learned, but it's not too late to learn, a lesson that we certainly could have learned throughout that difficult year, it's a lesson of contentment. 
we're kind of forced into a situation, a time when we have to sort of be content with the way that things are. If, you're, if not, then it was a very, very difficult year for you. Contentment is an incredible lesson that the Christian should learn and will always have to learn because there will always be temptations, there will always, always be trials that test your contentment. And our aim should be that we would be indomitable Christians, that is, Christians who are not dominated by anything, Christians who are, have a, a, a mastery over themselves, who are resilient no matter what situation presents themselves. And so this morning, as we go to this passage, which is looking at one great Christian lesson, a lesson that Paul himself learned very well and a lesson that we would also do well in learning as well. So the passage begins with a reference to a gift, or rather it's a concern that the church desired to express to the Apostle Paul. So it says in verse 10, I rejoice in the Lord greatly, greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You indeed were concerned for me, but I had no opportunity. And so this is actually a direct reference to what we've talked about. I don't know how many weeks ago, but it was weeks ago, when we went into the book of Philippians, and specifically in chapter, the end of the chapter 2, we read about Epaphroditus, who was sent by the Philippian church to, on his travel to bring this sort of this care package to the Apostle Paul. So it seems that the, that the church had this uh, concern for the Apostle Paul, as well they should. They may have heard that the Apostle is in prison. It seems like they've always been concerned, but they never had an opportunity to sort of articulate or do something with regards to that concern, maybe because the Apostle Paul is a world traveler, and so there's really no way that you can really know where the Apostle Paul is at any given time, because he's everywhere preaching the gospel, planting churches, but in this case, right, when he's writing this letter, he's forcibly, he's forced to stand still because he's in prison. And so this was the opportunity to sort of minister to the Apostle Paul. And it kind of shows one of, the many, one of the many tangible examples in the letter of just how affectionate the letter is, how much it's filled with love and joy and concern. That now that the Apostle Paul is in prison, this was the opportunity to take and minister to the dear brother. Maybe you've been there. I'm sure some of you have been there when you wanted to help somebody. But for whatever reason, there wasn't really an opportunity to help them. Maybe you're separated by distance, or maybe you were able to help them, maybe not to the degree that you desired to help them. You kind of feel that tension. You wish that you could just do a little bit more, but for whatever reason, you just, you're just not able to. It seems that's the kind of tension that this church felt towards the Apostle Paul up until this moment where they could actually release this tension and be able to minister to the Apostle Paul in this way. But notice that he says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly. 
again and again and again, Paul continues to point to us the fact that his joy is ultimately in the Lord, which is an example for us that our joy should be in the Lord. And so not that he didn't care about this particular gift, not that he, had any, that he didn't have any joy in this gift, not that he wasn't ungrateful for Epaphroditus' sacrifice and his receiving this gift on behalf of the church, but ultimately his greatest joy came from the Lord. He rejoices more in the Lord more than he does in the gift. As precious as this gift, I'm sure, was to the Apostle Paul. And this really speaks to the horizontal nature of joy in the Christian life. That there is, that we are put here on earth not only to glorify the Lord but also to find our joy in Him and also to complete one another's joy. That there is a joy in giving. That there is a joy in meeting the needs of others. That there is a joy in helping others. And so it seems for the Apostle Paul that he rejoiced in the Lord in part because he knew that the church wanted to help him out, didn't have the opportunity before, and now they are able to And he rejoiced in the Lord that the Lord has provided an opportunity for them to be able to minister to him. For us, there is a joy. There's a joy in giving. In Acts 20.35, and most of you, if not all of you, have heard this before, are familiar with this. In Acts 20, 35, In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. Some of you have heard of, like the, uh, what's it called, the, the five love languages. I don't even remember what they, they all are. But there's like a, a way that's like five different ways, according to this one author, that people receive love. And some of them might be just by serving. Some of it just might be by, by gifts. I think that the Christian love language that is common to all Christians is the, is the, is the language of giving. The, the language of gifting, not necessarily monetary gifting, but the gifting of one's energy and time and resources to help others. One of the ways that the Bible describes believers is servant. Right? We are servants under the household of God. That is, that is part of our DNA, that's part of our makeup. If you are born again as a, as a child of the living God, that part of your DNA is to serve, to serve others, and that there is a joy in serving others. And that you you actually, you believe that word, that it is much more blessed to give than to receive. That it completes the other person's joy, but it also increases your joy in the Lord as well, because you receive from the Lord, and for that you thank Him, and then with, with what you receive from the Lord, then you give on to others. And you also thank that. Thank the Lord for that. I 
2 Corinthians 9, 11. We'll actually could spend a little bit more time on this passage next week. But this is a really, really good passage. 2 Corinthians 9, 11 tells us, and by the way, context, uh, church uh, in Corinth was called to uh, put, pool their uh, resources together to give to another church. 2 Corinthians 9, 11, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. So what the ministry of this service, this pooling of resources together to give to destitute Christians, will produce a wellspring of thanksgiving upon, from those who are receiving. And this ministry of service all comes from a submission of, to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Ultimately, what generates this, this generosity to pool one's resources together to give to those in need is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, there are certainly many people in the world, and I'm sure you may, that you know some of them who are not believers to follow Jesus Christ, but they are incredibly generous. They love to help people. They love to give to others and praise the Lord for people like that. We need more people like that in the world. But the difference is that ultimately when one person gives to another, when God is not in the mind and in the heart, is that it doesn't, it's not intended to produce any thanksgiving to God. It's not intended to produce any glory or honor to God. Whereas for us, yes, we want to meet each other's need because we're called to, because we love one another, but also because we know that this will produce thanksgiving and glory and honor to God. Right, and that gives us joy. Right, and there's a joy in receiving as well because when somebody meets our needs, well, then we thank God for providing in this way to help, for, to help meet the need that we have through this person who has given to us their time, energy, resources, whatever it may be. And so there is a joy that comes from the Lord and that is only enhanced through the ministry of service that we do on behalf of one another. However, notice what Paul says. Even though he rejoices greatly in the Lord, that the church has been able to express their concern for him in this way, he says in verse 11, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Paul says he's not, he's not in need. He's not talking about his being in need. He's not rejoicing in the Lord that he had this need that needed to be met because he's learned to be content. And he's learned that lesson over and over again, if you know anything about his life. Right? And we read 
when we've gone through, we've gone through chapter 3 in Philippians, of everything that Paul had and was. Right, tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, that's the law, a Pharisee, a zeal, a persecutor of the church. I mean, this man was a Pharisee of Pharisees, was a teacher of the law, had the admonition, the prestige, the honor, the respect that comes from his people. In that sense, Paul had everything, and then he met the Lord on the road to Damascus, believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he traded it for something else. And this is what he traded that life for. 2 Corinthians eleven twenty four. he tells us, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys. In danger from rivers. Danger from robbers. Danger from my own people. Danger from Gentiles. Danger in the city. Danger in the wilderness. Danger at sea. Danger from false brothers in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. If you thought your life under COVID last year was hard, this man lived a hard life. That's what he traded his life for, for that. If there's anybody who had a reason to be discontent, it's, it's this man. He had every reason to be discontent. And yet he tells us in Philippians 3.8, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. What keeps him going after suffering all that he had suffered was contentment. He learned through personal experience what it is to be content. And contentment is a lesson that we all need. But you know the experience of being discontent. You know from personal experience what it leads to. This contentment leads you to be angry, to be upset, to be dissatisfied, to be perhaps impatient with others, to be ungrateful. And discontentment is much more than that. It's, actually, let's sort of give you a two-part definition of what contentment is. One, I'll leave for later. But here's one part of the definition of contentment. Contentment is accepting one's situation. Especially when it's a situation that you cannot help, a situation that you cannot change, that you have no power or ability to change. Contentment is accepting things for the way that they are. And when we are discontent, well, we are struggling to accept the way that things are. And discontentment really speaks to the providence of God. Discontentment, I think, is a lack of trust in the providence of God. 
but because if you trust that God is providential, that God is sovereign over your life, that God is the one who gives, that the God is the one who takes, that everything that you have is from the Lord, that the Lord is looking over your life, and he orchestrates different things in your life ultimately for your good, then discontentment is lack of trusting in God's providence over your life. It's saying, God, this is not right. Your plan is wrong. Discontentment is also a lack of trust in the goodness of God. Right, James tells us that every good gift and every perfect gift comes from above, coming down to us from the Father of lights. God ultimately is the provider for your life. That God loves you, that God cares for you, but when we are discontent with our life, we are no longer trusting that God is good. That whatever has presented itself in our life that we would not want whatever it is, we're no longer trusting that God means it for our good. We're no longer trusting that God has your best interest in mind. If we find yourself often saying to yourself, this could be better, oh, that could be better, or just saying everything could be better, then you are struggling with discontentment. And you can be discontent about just, about just anything. You can be discontent about your job. You can be discontent about family. You can be discontent about your friends. You can be discontent about how much money you make. You can be discontent about the car you drive. You can be discontent about the way you look. You can be discontent about your marriage. You can be discontent about your church. So we all, more than once throughout our lifetime, we need to learn the lesson of contentment. And the lesson of contentment is oftentimes learned in the crucible of deprivation. When you come to a particular point in your life and you realize all the things that you lack, and you realize, I don't have this, though I wish I had it. I don't have that. I don't have the power, the ability to do this or to acquire this or to change my situation. It's in those moments, it's in those seasons, it's in those trials that you must learn contentment. Not just in deprivation, but even in abundance, even those who have been blessed by God with plenty, right? and praise the Lord if that is your situation. But the struggle for you, if you're in that position, is how to find contentment in what you have and not to desiring more. Because when we have plenty and we have the power and the means to get whatever we want, get whatever we need, then ultimately, the struggle, the temptation is to trust in our own hands, to depend on our own hands, to maintain our contentment, when ultimately our contentment, more about this a little bit later, but when our contentment has to ultimately come from God.
jealousy, greed, envy, lust. All those things are just symptoms. Oftentimes, not all the times, but oftentimes they're symptoms of a heart that is discontent. But our desire should be to be indomitable Christians. Many of the times that we find ourselves discontent are because of things that happen outside of us, not always, but oftentimes because of things that happen outside of us, things that we cannot control, situations that present themselves. And it's in those situations, those situations sort of have a tendency, if we allow them to, to hang a noose around our, our neck and kind of pull us wherever it wants to take us. But the one who has learned contentment is one who is not easily driven, tossed to and fro by every situation that presents itself. Part of the goal is adaptability, but not just adaptability, but it's consistency. And how do you maintain a consistent posture in any and every situation in life? How do you maintain a pattern of trust? How do you maintain a pattern of joy? How do you maintain a pattern of satisfaction in the Lord, no matter how difficult the trial is? The unshakable Christian is one who is not driven by plenty, is not driven by lack. Here's a second part of that definition of contentment. Contentment is an independence from the world that comes from a dependence upon God. Contentment ultimately is grounded in God. It has to be grounded in the Lord. When your contentment is grounded in God, then you have an independence from the world. Right, no longer clinging to those things. Those things are not what's, it's not what's defining your contentment. Your contentment is not found in those things, whatever those things might be. Hebrews 13.5, I love this. Hebrews 13.5 says, Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For God has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. There's the promise that comes with contentment. How do you find contentment? How do you maintain your contentment? Especially when you have in a season of life or in a situation where you are struggling to be content. You look to Hebrews 13.5 and you read this promise that your contentment ultimately comes from this, that God will never leave you or forsake you. That God is with you. That God is providential over your life. That your God is good to you, even though your situation in your life seems to be saying something else. The Word of God promises you that God is still good, and that He has not left you or forsaken you. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. 
In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. That is contentment. And it concludes, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Wonderful passage. But does he really mean all things? Can he actually do all things? Is all things, is everything and everything without exception? I don't think that's actually the case. I think the all things is narrowly defined by the context of the passage. He's talking about not being in need. He's talking about in any and every situation or whatever the situation might be, I am to be content. That in the Lord, he finds the strength. That in the Lord, you can find the strength to be content in any and every circumstance or situation. Our strength ultimately comes from the Lord, and through the Lord's strength, we certainly can be content in all situations. Again, there's so much joy in the passage. Paul continually points to joy, joy that comes from the Lord, joy from, that, comes to the, that he receives from the church, joy in either departing and being with Christ or joy in remaining for the progress and joy of the church, joy in the, in the preaching of the gospel that continues even though he's in prison. And joy in the Lord, at least a satisfaction in God. And when you have joy and satisfaction in the Lord, you have contentment. It's a three-package deal. If joy in God is to be satisfied in God, when you are satisfied in the Lord, then you have every reason to be content, no matter what situation you are in. There seems to be a kind of a great movement today towards uh, towards stoicism, something that ancient philosophers taught and pursued, this, the stoic life, a life of, not of, a, of excess, but a life of moderation, a life that pursues good and wonderful virtues. It's not bad in and of itself. And stoicism produces good people, and we certainly could use more and more good people in the world. But it cannot produce people who are satisfied in Christ. Well, we want to be content, right? We want to be sort of have a, a permanent ground to stand on so that no matter what situation presents itself, we're not tossed to and fro by every situation that presents itself in our lives. But our contentment comes ultimately from being satisfied in Jesus Christ. Right, we have such a wonderful example, not only in the Apostle Paul's life, but we have the example in Jesus Christ himself, Jesus. I mean, if, if Paul had everything, Jesus certainly had more. Right, the divine Son of God, the intimate and loving fellowship in the Trinity in heaven, had everything in heaven, came to earth, born to a virgin, lived a sinless, perfect life, even though he lived as a human being, submitted himself to the divine plan of God, submitted himself to the life of a human being, 
submitted himself to a cross and died on that cross. And nowhere in the scriptures do we read about his complaining or grumbling or any hint of discontentment with his situation. But he accepted the situation for what it was, willingly walked into it, willingly headed towards the cross in order to save those who would believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, to spare them for the judgment and wrath of God. And Jesus could not have endured that cross if he was not content. Content in the plan of God. Content in not using his divine omnipotence to call upon the angels and save him from the cross as he was hung there. But he submitted himself to God and he was 100% dependent upon God. Jeremiah Burroughs, a Puritan, wrote a book titled The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. In that book he writes, I find a sufficiency of satisfaction in my own heart through the grace of Christ that is in me. Though I have no outward comforts and world conveniences to supply my necessities, yet I have a sufficient portion between Christ and my soul abundantly to satisfy me in every condition. Contentment is a precious, precious lesson that we should learn. And contentment, in the truest sense of the word, contentment ultimately comes from having a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Without that, you have every reason to be discontent. There will always be more and more reasons to be discontent. And so then, when it comes to contentment, what does this mean or doesn't mean for you? Contentment does not mean that you never change your situation. Well, although I, I know I kind of might sound like I'm contradicting myself because I say one definition of contentment is that you accept your situation. Yet at the same time, contentment doesn't necessarily mean that you never change your situation if it can be helped. But there are some times where you don't have the power or the ability to change your situation. Maybe you'd like to get yourself a much more reliable vehicle, perhaps, but you don't have the means to purchase one. Well, you have to then learn to be content with that situation. But surely if there is you have the ability, if you have the power, if you have the opportunity to change your situation, contentment does not mean that you never change your situation. Go ahead, by all means, change your situation if it is for the better. But just remember that contentment, your contentment should not come from your changing your situation. Contentment ultimately comes from God. It comes from a dependence upon God and not on your changing your situation. Contentment also means that you should not be discontent when you can only help to a certain degree. 
Right? Sometimes you and I might struggle with wanting to do more, help out more, give more. But I think of the widow and the, the story of the widow in the, old, in, in the Gospels, who in the offering plates gave all that she had, even though it was very little, especially in comparison to anybody else who could have given and who did give. And Jesus found her offering much more honorable than everybody else's. I don't think it's just because of what she gave, but because of the heart behind it. Sometimes, right, you can only do so much. The Lord, it's, a, it's accepting what the Lord has given to you today. And being a good steward of what the Lord has given to you today. And sometimes that means that you do not have all that is available to you to do for others. And you should never feel bad about not being able to do more. Be content with what you are able to do. And thank the Lord for that. Contentment also means that you should seek to help and give when opportunities present themselves. What contentment does is that it, it, it frees us up. When you have an independence from the world, an independence upon God, you are hanging on to those other things much more loosely. It allows you, it frees you up to give your time, energy, and resources to others. Because discontentment does the opposite. Discontentment makes you insular, makes you focus on what you don't have, makes you focus on what you need or think you need. And it doesn't concern itself with others. Contentment means that you accept what has been given to you by God, whether it's a lot or whether it's a little, and you be grateful. Luke 12, 15. Jesus says, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. He thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself is not, and is not rich toward God. The judgment given here by the Lord Jesus in this parable is that the man who had a lot of things made it his life goal, made it his, part of his, sort of his life's purpose to acquire more and more, and he needed to store it elsewhere because he was running out of room, so he built bigger barns and bigger barns in order to, to store all his stuff. Ultimately, he lived his life unto himself. But the man was not rich towards God. He was considered a fool because he gave his life to the acquiring of possessions when on that very night, the Lord would take his life and then all those things that he's acquired will ultimately just Go to somebody else. But this is our great ambition, that we would be rich toward God. 
And what contentment helps us to do is to be rich toward God. Where we are not looking insular, where we're not focused on ourselves, we're not looking to acquire more stuff just for the sake of acquiring more stuff. But we are looking to be rich toward God, to be rest satisfied in God, to have our joy in the Lord Jesus. Right, Jesus himself tells us in the Gospels to lay up treasures for yourself in heaven. So this is what we pursue. And there's no way that we can pursue this, this being rich toward God without contentment. Because contentment or discontentment is always looking for more. It's always focused on what's lacking and is desiring what's lacking. But having a contentment that comes from a dependence upon God helps us to focus on what matters most, and that is that we ultimately have God, that we have the Lord, and that we do not need other things to give us joy and satisfaction, and that they should not be pursued for the purpose of increasing one's joy and satisfaction. Right, life is always changing. One season could be different from the other. One day you can have everything. One day you can have nothing. But what's going to get you through every single day, through every week, through every month, through every single year is the lesson of contentment, having a dependence that comes from God. Contentment comes from having God as your greatest treasure. When the Lord is your treasure, then you will have contentment that endures through any situation, through any tribulation, through any trial. But contentment isn't just having Christ as your greatest treasure. Contentment abounds when we increase our joy and when we increase our satisfaction in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us your gracious gift that comes to us in the person of your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to find our contentment in Him. Help us to maintain our contentment in Him. Lord, we want to be able to say that in any and every situation, We have learned to be content. That we know how to have plenty and how to have little. That we know how to hunger and how to have and how to be satisfied. Help us to learn this valuable lesson. No, help us, God, to not learn it as the world learns it. But help us to learn it by casting ourselves upon the Lord. Casting our lives upon the God who promises us who will never leave us or forsake us. May our lives be grounded in that wonderful promise. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.